0: music and all the contribution folks have made to congregational singing and all this morning. Thank you for being here and being a part of the service today. I appreciate that very much. Let be praying for Ryan. He will not be with us too much longer. He'll be heading back to Pensacola and getting a continued study there, I believe, uh, in law enforcement. Are you still? Uh, he's in law enforcement and he's been been running around with IPD here in Annapolis Police Department flying over the city, I might add, in that uh, Helicopter of theirs. He's doing good, so you pray for him and for his safety. And I remind you too, uh, when I think of that, is I uh, pray for Mr. Strevel who is in the, the State Patrol, and also Brother Rene's brother Eddie. Keep praying for these folks who are out there and doing their work. And pray for their responsible jobs being done well. And then don't forget to pray for our military personnel scattered all over the world for their safety and protection. Their families here in the states and pray for the Lord to finish these tasks that they've been assigned and be able to get them home with their families very soon, please. Romans chapter 7, we begin reading in verse 7 of chapter 7. Romans 7 and verse 7 says, What shall we say then, Paul writes to the church at Rome, is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. I appreciate one of the things about the Apostle Paul, and that is that he shows himself to be an honest preacher in handling the Scriptures. And he does that several ways, but one of them is that he does not skirt or dodge the obvious question that grows out of everything that he's been saying up to this point from chapter 6 or up to chapter 6 and regarding the law. Everything that he said about the law, and there's so much we'll not reiterate it now, but we could go quickly back to chapter 3 in one of his key words. And chapter 3 in verse number 28, he said this. He said, Therefore we conclude, we come to this conclusion after all of our investigation, our understanding by divine inspiration. We understand that a man is justified by faith and that without the deeds of the law. So there he says it's not by justification does not come by the law or submission to it or obedience to it. Then when you got over to chapter number 6 in verse number 14, he said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Typically he's saying there that law cannot sanctify you. The law cannot save you and the law cannot sanctify you. And his statement is that sin shall not have the dominion or the control over you. And the reason for that is is not that the law was helping it to be so, but rather because you're under grace and another operation of God's will. And consequently, therefore, the law cannot save you. The law cannot sanctify you. But he goes a step further here in chapter 7 when he says in verse number 6, But now we're delivered from the law and being dead, wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So that verse of Scripture simply says that we're not only... Delivered from the law as believers, but we're also dead to the law. So it begs the question what in the world is there any good to the law? If it doesn't save you, if it doesn't sanctify you, if you're delivered from it, if you're dead to it, then what in the world is there of any good to the law? So Paul says, I honestly face the question. I've raised it in my teaching, in my preaching, in my writings, and so let's face the question is there any good in the law? And in this context, uh, he'll make it very clear that he's talking about the law of God in general not something in a sense that uh, of the add-ons because I hope you remember as we've stated before that the Jewish leaders had calculated some 600 laws and in fact they had them divided into two lists and the one list was over 200 and on that list there were these 200 and almost 60, I think to do, you know, these are things you must do and then he had a list of over 350 of things you were not to do and so you put them together, you had over 600 raw laws that the Jewish leaders had actually accumulated that gave direction to people's lives. And no wonder these people would come to the conclusion, man, there ain't no way you can do all this. It's just impossible. Well, let me remind you of what the law was all about in the first place. The law of God was given to show mankind God's standard and to make it very clear to all, to all, the absolute impossibility... Of arriving at that fulfilling, arriving at or fulfilling that standard, that you just cannot do it. What it also did, it would bring people and point them to the need they had to turn to another source if they had intent to be right with God. So the law was really intended to show people how desperately needed there was for an outside source to come in to make it possible for them and God to have a right relationship. That's what the law was about. Let me take you to Paul's own testimony. Look, if you would, at the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter number 3. In Philippians chapter number 3, Paul is writing this, and Paul says this, chapter 3 and verse number 7. Chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 7, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, For what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ? Yea, doubtless I counted all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's the righteousness we're talking about. And the fact is what Paul came to understand was that that righteousness that he had accumulated under obedience to the law was not going to make him any more right with God than he was before. That was not going to get it. And the fact is, his attempts, even at best, were still failures. And so here in chapter number 7 of Romans, Paul comes back to this issue about the law, but he doesn't want you to misunderstand what the law is all about and what it's for. And when we talk about the law, I hope you understand it's the general law of the Scriptures, not any specific or particular points that we could bring to you and list them out of the Old Testament. Here in context, chapter 7, notice he starts out, What shall we say then? Is the law sin?" And he gives it his uh, standard answer, God forbid. The law is not sin. God gave the law and God is holy and nothing God gives is sinful. That's a logic that follows very clearly. But it's interesting that he uses the strongest of these Greek negatives again in this context to emphasize absolutely not. The law is not sin. Obeying the law is not bad. It's just impossible to do it to a way and to a level that God would be pleased. That's his point. Then he explains that the law is not only not sin... But in fact he points out here that it has great value. And so for the rest of the passage, in fact, more than we'll get to today, he's going to show you the good things about the law. And here's the first. Verse number 7, he points out, what shall I say then or shall we say then? Is the law sin, God forbid? Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. Here's the first point, and it's very clear. First benefit of the law is it reveals sin. It reveals sin. Let may say this and you need to understand this. How can we understand what sin is if we do not have some set standard of righteousness helping us to choose between right or wrong? Somewhere there has to be a standard set. We see sin is explained or defined as a transgression or a violation of a set law. That's what the definition of sin would be. Sin, by that very definition, then, depends on some kind of standard by which a performance or a behavior is somehow measured. So the point made, through the law, we can tell sin. We can identify it by seeing God's law set up. We can compare to it, and we see it. By the way, somebody said, well, does that mean there was no sin before the law? Absolutely. There was sin before the law, but the law made us see sin as it really was. As I would say, it accentuates it. It emphasizes it. It makes it clear. We've heard Paul make this and hit this truth before in his epistle. Back over in chapter 3, for instance, I read again this week. Verse number 20, where Paul wrote this, he said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, but for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We come to understand what God calls sin by looking at something and understanding it in comparison to God's law. Now, that's why around the New Life Baptist Church, we constantly are hammering away at the ideal of reading God's Word. The people who do not read God's Word on a daily basis do not have a good basis of comparison of what's right and wrong. Just don't have it. If you did not read God's Word every day this week, you are not in a position to make good judgments about right and wrong. That's the point. This is the law of God. And when the law of God confronts a matter in comparison to God's law, something stands out and is accentuated as absolute sin. Our problem is we don't read the words, so we don't know what sin is. We, we do things that we just say, oh boy, that's not sin. Not, everybody does this. Well, that doesn't make it right. What you need to compare it with is what does God say? And you say, well, I've read a lot of God's Word, but I've never read anything against this. The fact of my matter I'm making is that when you read it day in and day out, it so saturates your mind that when you face something, it immediately is a comparison basis. God said this, and I'm trying to do this. This is wrong, so I won't do that. That's what it works, and that's how it works. We've got this idea that we keep these Ten Commandments folded up in our pocket, and then we look at these Ten Commandments, and if we pass all these Ten, we're in great shape. That's not the way life is. There's some things that are not listed in the Ten Commandments. The fact of the matter is that when you read God's Word day in and day out, it will underline in your mind what is right, what is not right, and it's not by the letter of the law. It also works by the spirit of the law. In the spirit of the matter, not just the letter, it may not say specifically, do not do this. The Bible doesn't necessarily say that about a lot of things that are wicked and ungodly. For instance, I don't know of any place, there is no place that I know of in the Bible where it says succinctly, that two men cannot be married. Have you found a passage where it says succinctly, distinctively, this man and this man cannot be married? Have you found a verse like that? Have you found a verse where it does it says in the Scripture, you should not smoke? Have you found that verse? You see, the fact of the matter is, you're not going to find a lot of direct statements in the Scripture that have, in fact, been proven to be the spirit of the Scriptures that we are abstain from. But fact of the matter is, some people say until I see it in black and white, I'm just gonna keep on doing what I'm doing, you know. Well just keep on doing, you'll just be doing wrong. And until you take God's word and lay it beside of what you do, you'll never know right and wrong. And that's why early on the Bible encourages us to train up our children in the ways that are right. What he's talking about in the ways of God's Word so they can make their own decisions as they get over Do you know there are adults who can't make a good decision between a right and a wrong? I mean, they look at things and like, say, I don't know what to do about this. In fact, the matter is, if you be in the Word every day seeking God's direction and honestly, honestly pursuing what is right, you'll see it. You'll see it. God didn't hide the truth in a haystack and say, Go find it. God put it in His Word put the Holy Spirit inside and say you'll know it. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. In this passage of Scripture, Paul's writing back in chapter 3, verse 20 and also in chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 5 and chapter 5, verse 13. All of these are emphasizing the fact of what the law was for. All of these things he's written are simply underlining the fact that we would not have known sin were it not for the law. And that's an important point. You see, uh, and I think another way to say it is left to ourselves, we would never naturally see ourselves or think of ourselves as sinners. Just left to ourselves, we would never see ourselves as sinners. Well, how do you come to know you're a sinner? Because running what I call somehow, some way, somewhere, you run heart first into the revealed Word of God And the Holy Spirit uses that word to convict you of not meeting the standard. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we run into the standard, we say, hey, I don't match up to that. I I haven't kept that. I haven't obeyed that. I've not done that. And immediately the Holy Spirit says, that's the point. You're a sinner. You haven't done it. But now you know the standard. Now you know what God expects. Now you know what God wants. And there is now, therefore, no excuse. Our problem. And it is our problem as a human race. Our problem is that as long as we use the standard of other people and compare ourselves one to another, we'll feel pretty good, pretty religious, and pretty righteous. The problem with that is it won't get you anywhere with God. God doesn't care what the neighbor down the street does, does not do. He cares about what he's recorded in his word and how you're complying to it. So when he gave this, he said, this is my standard. This is my measurement. This is my rule of thumb. You want to know whether you meet up, match up? Then you read this. You want to know what the right decision about a matter is? You read this. It's in my word. It's in the law. It's recorded for you to know because this is my standard of righteousness. And I want you to obey it something else. But as soon as we are confronted with the demands of God's law, the Holy Spirit convicts us of it. Our sinful failures are brought to the surface. We then see our hopelessness of making it our own way and we do what that publican did in the New Testament. We cry out to God. God, be merciful to me a sinner. And that's at that point we come in touch with God. Sadly, in our present day push to get people saved, we sometimes don't give the time for a person to come under great conviction of their sin. We sometimes push that person from the reality of just telling them the information and impressing them until they make a decision. Say, okay, I trust Christ as Savior. And they walk down an aisle, they sign a card, they join a church, they get baptized, and then you don't see any difference in their lives. And you wonder, what in the world went wrong? Well, the problem is they may have not won, really realized the standard of God's holiness, and realized they didn't meet it. And two, they did not realize that they were sinners. They thought that you just believe God. You know, you don't deal with sin. You just deal with the reality there is a God. I believe there is a God. Well, that's not going to get you to heaven. I remind you, the devils believed and even trembled at the fact, but they're still in hell today as demons. Believing God is not the issue there. Believing God comes to be an issue in the believer's life because it's an act of faith that is operative all the time. But for that lost person... One aspect of salvation that often gets trampled is our failure to really see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. As a pastor of a church over the years, I've seen it time and time again. What what John wrote was so true. People who are in church and supposedly go on with the church for a while and then they drop out and they never get back on board again. I'm reminded of what John said. He said, if they were of us, they would have no doubt continued with us but the simple fact that they don't continue with us is a sure proof they would never of us. Now let that sink into your heart. That means that there could be people sitting in this auditorium right now that are as lost and as certain and as sure of hell as anybody in the world that's ever gone there. And the fact of the matter is that, that you may be sitting here thinking pretty good of yourself. First off, by the way, by the way, at no point even a Christian ought to think pretty good of himself. It's pretty deceptive of your heart if you ever sit down and muse over how good you are as a Christian. Let me tell you something. If we had our just desserts even as the best Christian in this room, and I've certainly not putting myself at the list, we would say to ourselves, But by the grace and mercy of God I'm not in hell right now. Because we aren't good people, we're just saved people. He's still working and boy does he have a job to do on my heart, and I suspect on some of yours. So the thing is not that we're getting better and better and better and better, and then after a while we earn a right in heaven. It's not that at all. Salvation from start to finish is a work of the grace of God. And it is important for you to understand that unless we teach our children early on, it is the fact that they have offended a holy God who has this holy standard. And when they come confront that and they crumble beneath it under conviction. You see, I fear greatly because I don't see the conviction in people's hearts as they make decisions as they did years ago. I guess I'm old-fashioned, but I still believe in conviction of sin. I still believe in a heart that's broken over my sinfulness. We just don't see much of that anymore. It's almost as if in some programs when you see people making decisions and they interview them and so on, it's almost as if they believe they've done God a favor. God, I'm giving up. You got me. That's not the way it is. Oh, yes, he's been pursuing you, and certainly you have not pursued him, but that's not the big deal. The big deal is he's pursued you to get you to realize who you really are, what you really are, what you really deserve. And then it's then at that point, when you're confronted with a real high, holy standard of God's law, that you break under the pressure of realizing how bad you are. If you've forgotten how bad you are, you need to go back into the early chapters of uh, the book of Romans and we went over that great list. You can begin reading it in chapter 3 and then you can begin reading verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul said in chapter 3, verse 9, What then are we better than they? No and no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they were all under sin. In verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. My point about all that is, do you think by a stroke of redemption, that you got rid of all that? Did you think just because you trusted Christ as Savior that all the things that were wrong with you before have all of a sudden mystically, magically been taken out? I hate to be the guy to break the bad news to you, but you have a sin nature. And much of what those texts are talking about is the sin nature that's in you. And you didn't leave that at the door when you came in here. You still got it. And you will have it all day long, and all week long, and all month long, and all the rest of your life you'll have it. And the fact of the matter, the one thing that keeps that thing in check, carefully listen, is the law of God. As you read God's law and you see who you are, what you are, and realize that though you're saved, there is still a wickedness of your heart. And you understand that, it'll be the law of God that'll keep it in check. Keep it in check keep it in check if you want on to verse number seven when Paul says what shall we say then is the law sin God forbid very strong wording God forbid no absolutely not I had not known sin but by the law and then he gives an illustration of his own for I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet what he's talking about here is the tenth commandment in that tenth commandment, This 10th commandment differs from all the other nine for a very obvious reason because this 10th commandment is an inward attitude, not an outward one. So what he's dealing with in this is that coveting is a, a sin that leads to the breaking of the other commandments. And someone wrote, and rightly so, covetousness is an insidious sin that most people never recognize in their own hearts and lives, but God's law reveals clearly. And you're right. I mean, you don't hear people going around saying, "Hey, I covet all the time. I look at my neighbor's house and I look at my neighbor's property and his bank account." And I, lo-. you don't hear people saying that. Why? Because we don't anybody know that's what we think. And Paul says that's the whole point. We keep it out of sight. We keep it out of sight. I read in the Sunday School preliminaries this morning, Luke chapter eleven. Those folks who were sitting here, it talks about denouncing the Pharisees. And our Lord was invited to dinner by one of the Pharisees. He said, "Hey, won't you come to our house and have a dinner?" Our Lord said, okay, fine. Our Lord went to this man's house in Luke chapter 11. He sits down at the meal. He didn't wash his hands in a ceremonial way. And so the Pharisee gets all bent out of shape. And he said, wait a minute, you didn't wash your hands. And the Lord takes an opportunity to say, you're also concerned about the exterior and you forget that the greater sin is in the heart. The greater sin is in the heart. There's by far more sin in this room than the heart than there has been accomplished in the hand today or will be or will be because as a man thinketh in his heart so is he that's what we have to deal with and that's why the word of God see is is not something that you in a sense physically do it's something that you hide God's word in your heart that you might not what? sin against thee that's why it's there why? because that which is out of sight needs an out of sight kind of solution And you hide God's Word, which you can't see except to read. You hide that in your heart, and it doesn't just mean hide the words. It means hide the truth, the obedience and submission to it. You put that in your heart, and it tranquilizes, as it were, and it uh, dilutes that sinful thing, and we then abstain from that sin. In some sense, this is seen in the account of the the rich ruler. Let me uh, read and remind you of it. It's over in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10... The story of the rich ruler is uh, an interesting one because it too deals with this inward sin. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, where the story is recorded, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Verse 19, Thou knowest the commandments... Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto the Master, All these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. (laughs) That always strikes me greatly, you know. This guy's missed the whole point. You know, he's bragging about, oh, I've done that, done that, done that, done that, done that. that. that." And and, and you think he's going to turn to the Lord and say, "Uh, really, I've done everything you've ever asked to be done. I mean, I have never missed a one of those commands. Every one of them I've fulfilled. You think the Lord's looking at this guy and say, is this an idiot or what? You think the Lord will look at him and say, this guy thinks he's something big, doesn't he? But that's not the way the text reads. It says, verse 21, maybe because of his ignorance. Maybe because he doesn't know any better. But whatever the case is, the Bible says Jesus, beholding him, loved him. And then he said to him, One thing thou lackest. I want you to go thy way, and I want you to sell whatsoever thou hast, and I want you to give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad. He was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. What's interesting here, this man was very religious outwardly. I mean, this boy, this young man, however old he was, we call him the rich young ruler, but maybe he wasn't so young. Maybe he'd been around the block a few trips. Whatever the case is, this fellow had a very religious character externally. But when our Lord confronts him, he confronts him with something that nobody else could see. He points out something that this young man had not really confessed and nobody would know. He said, all these commands, and the man said, hey, I've kept every one of them. I've physically obeyed these laws. I've done every one of them. Our Lord said, there's one thing you haven't done, and I'm going to tell you now to go do it. As if I'm sure the young man was saying, sure, fire away. Whatever you say, I'll do. I'm right on board with you. And our Lord said, go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And this young man is saying, are you crazy? You, You understand what I have? You understand how I've accumulated all this stuff and how I've worked and I've desired this and I've now got it. And you're telling me just to throw it away and to give it away? Are you crazy? You say, is that what the text says? Well, I don't think that's recorded in the Greek, but the truth is, I believe that's the spirit of the guy. I believe that's exactly his spirit. And I believe it's exactly the spirit of people today because what he was hiding was an internal sin that he didn't want the Lord to touch. When the Lord said, here's something, this will really get to you. What I want you to do is to sell everything you've got. And this guy's saying, I can't do that. It's taken me all this time to accumulate this, and I desired these things, and I've got these things. What he's saying, I believe, is this young man had coveted and greed and all this had accumulated these things in his life. And with our Lord saying, look, you're going to prove now what you are by going and selling it and giving it to the poor. I believe the young man was saying, never. Never. And it's interesting here, you see, that he, instead of confessing his sin and saying, Yeah, you're right, I I, I coveted these things and I, I longed for them and I got them and now I'm greedy and I want to keep them. He simply does the simple way. Simple thing. And the simple thing was to reject Christ and the truth that he gave him and walk away grieved. And that's exactly what he did. By the way, he didn't walk away and just be grieved. This young man was walking away lost. And as far as we know, there's no record of him coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So the assumption is this young man or this ruler died in this kind of state of inward sin. Not outward. Oh, outward, he was a great guy. I mean, he's the kind of neighbor you'd like. He kept all the commandments that he'd ever confronted. But inwardly, he had a sin that literally, literally carried him away from the Lord Jesus Christ because he wouldn't bow to it. What's interesting, you see, is when we confront sin, and and it's probably still a good indication of our shame, we do try to camouflage it. We do try to cover it. Uh, Maybe you did. I'm not sure who the fellow was. I believe it was Mr. Downs in this week's Daily Journal wrote an article about we changed the name of sin. Did you see the article? A pretty good article. you know, he wrote about it, and he explained in there that uh, we've changed the name. You know, we we've made uh, we've made uh, sin something other than what it is, and 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 he's partly right. There's a there's a sense in that we have covered it and we have camouflage camouflaged it. For instance, it's a it's a known fact we don't call a guy who is a drunk when I was growing up. If a guy was a a drunk, he was a drunk, and I, and people called him a drunk. We got the town drunk now. You don't call a guy drunk now. He's an alcoholic. And it's interesting to me that we've even started calling it a disease. Let me tell you how stupid that ideal is. If that's a disease, it's the only disease you can buy in a bottle. It's the only disease that the state government taxes so we can educate kids and build roads with. That's stupidity. Absolute stupidity. And I say to you for good people, and there are, there are good people who buy into it say, oh, it's a disease. It's about as much a disease as murder is. You see, what we're trying to do is we're trying to cover our tracks and we're trying to excuse our behavior, and we're doing it every way in the book. Change what you must, but just don't call me a sinner. Don't tell people that I'm out of control and I can't control myself. Give me a break. Give me a break. The truth is, our problem is, we're not willing to face what we really are when we are alone. And we see ourselves for what we really are. And when we get alone and God, you know, we shut off the television, the video, and the CD, and the music, and the noise. And we get alone so God can talk. He begins to nail down these things, and we see who we really are. Really realize how wicked our hearts are. The work of the law is to give sin its appropriate name and to expose it for what it really is. Note something else about sin in chapter number 7, verse number 8 and 9. He said, Paul said, But sin, taken occasion, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. And verse number 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, Sin revived and I died. In verse 7, the law reveals sin. In verses 8 and 9, the law revives sin. say, so revives sin? hmm Revives sin. That's exactly what the verse is saying. And the law not only reveals it, but it also revives it. The fault here, by the way, is not the law. You see, the law would have no effect on us unless there was sin in here to be affected by it. So the problem is that there's this sinful nature. Our sinful nature is such that the sin that is already at work in our hearts gives the opportunity, as it were, by the law that produces, in this sense, all kinds of realization of what we aren't, of what we should be. That law touches that. By the way, notice that phrase, taking occasion, the Greek word that's used here was used originally with the ideal of it being a place from which a military force would launch an attack. That's the, that's the word in the Greek that's used, and that's its original meaning. It was a place from which you would take an advancement against the enemy. And in this context, what he's saying is, but sin taken occasion by the law. It was the sin that's waging the attack. But what prompted the attack was the law. When the law came up and there was an awareness of these sins, sin seemed to almost multiply. When an individual is directed by God's law, the thing that is prohibited becomes all I guess you'd say all that more inviting or encouraging to participate in. But by the way, but it's not for the sake of that which it prohibits. I'm convinced it rather provides a pathway for the exercise of self's will. It gives me a chance to do what I want to do. One preacher labeled this verse, sin's sad use of God's good law. And that's right. You see, when you sit down to hear the teaching of God's Word, and I said it last week and I repeat it today, it's one of the reasons why we're against the business of sex education in government schools. Because the very fact of mentioning a prohibited thing prompts a rebellious heart to say, "Huh, oh, I never thought about that. I wonder about that. I might just participate in that. Why? Because that's the way the heart is. You must remember, heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And the fact of the matter is, when the law is brought up of a prohibitive of saying you should not do this, there is something in all of us that says, hmm, I wonder what it would be like to do this. Somebody was talking about and sharing with people in a seminar one time. It wasn't a preacher. It was a, a layman, and they were sharing these things, and they gave out a list of sins. I mean, they just listed these sins and gave them out to the people in that seminar. And when the people came back after about two days and Contacted the office of this man who ran the seminar and he said, uh, I'd like to have another copy of those, those sins. And the man said, Well, why? And he said, I lost my copy. And he said, I'm sure I haven't got all of them in. Now, that's the kind of attitude. And I mean, that's not a joke, that's a fact. And that seminar headquarters is less than 27 miles from the front doors of this church. People who went to a seminar who were professing believers saw on this list some things and we're curious about it. And the follow-up calls to that office prove beyond question these people are going to investigate these sins. They want to know what, they, what is that? What is that sin? What is that? I've never heard of that, and they wanted clear explanations. Let me tell you something. My friend, you don't understand and I don't understand, and I don't think anybody else does what we really have inside our hearts. I was reading a few days ago of John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. I've read it many times, but what I fail to understand when I read it is that Pilgrim's Progress was a man who really did have an insight of the Scriptures. For instance, he has an insight about Romans chapter 7 and verse number 8. When Paul Bunyan wrote that, he wrote in one of the chapters about a large dust-covered room. If you've ever read it, you'll remember it. It was Interpreter's House, Interpreter's House. And it was, obviously, that room was to be reflective of the human heart. And Bunyan wrote, when a man with a broom, referring to God's law, began to sweep in the room, it stirred up the dust. The dust began to fly around in the room, and so much so that it stifled Christian, and he had to get out. The whole ideal in this, of course, is that that the law does to sin, it stirs it up, it cannot cleanse the heart, but it can stir it up. And it did. makes sin more obvious and makes it more objectionable and makes it more irritating to you and me. So if you remove the broom, the dust is still present, but it lies dormant. It's dead. Just so does sin in our hearts and our lives until the law is brought to bear upon them. And then it revives those sins. Note finally in verse number 9 in this text carefully. In verse number 9, he says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Before Paul was convicted by the law, he was alive. And what he means by that phrase here, I believe his sinful nature was, so to speak, dormant. He was, as it were, blissfully ignorant of the sinfulness of his heart. But when the commandment came and he saw himself for what he really was, sin revived. Sin revived. And he had to die, as it were, all over again. And by the way, the ideal of Paul dying, as far as any hope of achieving salvation on his home by his own efforts, he died to the ideal that he had goodness in his heart. That's the same thing. And in fact, it's back to Philippians chapter 3 again, verses 7, 8, and 9. Paul died to that which he had so committedly lived his life, of being a good Jew, obeying the law, doing everything he could to get God's approval, when in fact, none of it worked. None of it worked. It was then that Paul died, that is, that was at that point the end of himself, self-satisfied, self-secure, self-righteous kind of person. And it was because he came in touch with the laws of God. I was reading this week, too, about Jewish families and Jewish culture. They somehow think in this same term when their children make that transition from childhood to adulthood, they mark it in the Jewish culture with a ceremony called the Bar Mitzvah. The bar mitzvah is a rite of passage, as they call it, from childhood to manhood, from immaturity to maturity. And the bar mitzvah is really what they are signifying or acknowledging a, a reaching of the age of accountability. In fact, one of their brochures says in a little piece of paper that explains it from a Jewish community, bar mitzvah means son of commandment, signifying the child was able, as he was instructed in the law, to have a clear moral sense of what was required of him by God Almighty. He became a son of the commandment. So at the bar mitzvah, he is, is there is an acknowledgment that this child is old enough to understand what God says and be held accountable for it. He's a son of the commandment. What's interesting about that is, in actuality, the more of God's law you hear and know, the more sin it makes you aware of in your life. So that's why they call it the age of accountability. It's also the age of responsibility, an age where you can handle dealing with the sin that's in your life. Some people aren't there yet. Some adults aren't there yet. They haven't dealt with those sins, and they haven't confessed them before God. They haven't let them go. They haven't died to them. They haven't passed over them. They just keep hanging on to them. In the Jewish community, it is a matter that the bar mitzvah is a singular service, a singular ceremony when it declares this child, as it were, his past is gone, he begins a new era of living, and it is now under, under obligation of submission and obedience to the laws of God. Something else and a very interesting thing I was reading this week, and it reminds me of what people so often get into in America. I don't know whether you know it or not, but America had an emperor at one time. America had an emperor at one time he lived in California that may explain it and he was uh, several centuries past I say several a few some said that he might be mildly mad the noblest and best of known people of California would say he was a man of decent character though His name was Joshua A. Norton. He was a successful businessman at one time, but then speculations in the rice market brought financial ruin to him. Whether this clouded his mind or he started it as a joke, nobody knows. He just began to tell everybody he was the emperor of the United States of America. And the fact is, this thought grew into an obsession until 1859 he officially claimed In a printed uh, proclamation, himself to be the emperor. And by 1853, act of the California legislature, he was declared so. I told you it was a land of fruits and nuts. You didn't believe me. He assumed a sword and a plume and strutted the streets of San Francisco in a colorful uniform. Citizens of San Francisco were amused by this harmless ploy. And they went along with a self styled emperor for a while. They gave him recognition through free tickets to opening nights at various programs. Newspaper publicity would made it very obvious that it was a general acceptance. And per- by permitting him to collect small taxes and issue his own currency, it was all done in fun. And the emperor became a fixture in the city for several years. However, all of this was very serious to him. And he believed in his position, so much so that when tensions developed in Mexico, he expanded his authority. And he now called himself the emperor of these United States and the protector of Mexico. When the tragic figure, object of many practical jokes, died in 1880, he had tens of thousands of curious citizens at his funeral. All of that to understand that he lived... And he died in self-delusions. That amazes me. That amazes me. But I realize there are many religious people who live and die in a similar delusion. They believe they're going to heaven because they try. They believe they're going to heaven because they are good to a degree. Their standard of good they're going to heaven because they try to treat people right. They go to heaven or think they are because they go to church. They they're going to heaven because they have been baptized. They go to they're going to go to heaven because they just generally see themselves as everybody goes to heaven. And I'm one of them. Let me tell you something. I don't know of anything that is more delusional than the devil's lie that everybody goes to heaven. Unless it's the fact that everybody goes to heaven turns into an angel when they get there. You know. I'd remind you, you don't die and turn into an angel. There is no way that God could take what I am and make me an angel. Won't you understand that. Even God wouldn't do that. Mess up the whole program of the host of heaven. The fact of the matter is when people die, they are there what they are here, but just glorified. And I say to you that there is this delusion that people have and live in day in and day out about what's going to get them to heaven. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, but rather are trying your best to get to heaven on your own terms, I've got bad news for you. You're not going to make it. But I also have good news for you. Christ has a way that can make it. And when he died on the cross, he died so you could make it to heaven just fine. By simple childlike faith. But there's a second delusion. And that is this delusion that once you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that everything is hunky-dory. Everything is just fine fine wrong not just fine we still have a sin nature we still have a problem with sin and sin can still wreck and ruin your life and if you do not make up your mind to stay in God's word to keep it in check without a doubt it'll wreck and ruin yours so don't be deluded and don't be lied to and deceived by the devil himself God has a way, and you have a way. Everybody has a way. But man's way is a way that seemeth right to him, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jesus said, I am the way. The relationship with Jesus Christ is the real way to have a right relationship with God. And when you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the way, then he'll help you to understand this book, which is the guideline for living the Christian life, and this book... The law of God will be the book that will help you make right choices. I remind you, as I have often, you are the sum total of all the choices and decisions you've ever made up to this point. Good or bad, this is the total. Now, you can change that from here on out by making good choices based on God's Word. But you've got to start here. I hope you will. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the Holy Scriptures and for the law of God as it's recorded there. I thank you for the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am deeply grateful that it is not a salvation in which you have started and we must keep up. I am deeply grateful that it is not a salvation that we personally have to contribute to to make it work. I'm glad that the salvation we have in Christ is a done deal, paid for in full. And ours is but to trust and to rest in that salvation. Our responsibility comes in in living the Christian life under your auspices, reading your word and taking to heart that which we hear and understand and becoming a doer of the word, not just a hearer, and then moving from glory to glory as a Christian, maturing in our faith and understanding our relationship with you more fully and understanding it and appreciating it and loving it and loving you the more with every day that passes. I pray that you'll take the message today and drive it deep into our hearts and to our homes and help us to be what we ought to be. And, Father, I do pray especially for any who are here without Christ, how my heart goes out to them that they need the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they are confronted with the law of God, the Holy Spirit brings conviction of heart. And it's at that point salvation is a possibility. I pray now that you'll bring forth fruit that you've ordained for this hour. Speak to hearts and lives and change us even as we leave today in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 if you need a hymn book. We'll sing the invitation song, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart about your relationship with Christ, let me encourage you to come first. And if you're uncertain of it, or if you know for sure you're not saved, then let us help you. And let us take the scriptures and show you from the Bible how you can know for certain, for sure, Christ is your Savior. Or, if you're a believer and God has smitten your heart about matters of your life today and you need to come and use the front pews as a place, as an altar, and confront these things, this is a place, this is the time, and this is your opportunity. As we sing 282, verse 1, sing together, please. Just as I am. And God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Would you come? you so much for your attention your time this morning and with mike coming forward this morning he is uh, asked to address you with a confession and uh, i've granted that and so mike if you'll turn around and address the congregation of the new life baptist church if you would please sir